1: Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome Mr. Jay Feldman. He is the executive director and co-founder of the nonprofit organization called Beyond Pesticides, which is a voice for health. And the environment promoting protection from pesticides and safe alternatives. Mr. Feldman is also on the National Organic Standards Board, and we are thrilled to have you with us. So, welcome, Jay.
0: Thank you very much, Melinda.
1: Well, I love Beyond Pesticides, and this is the second time I've had you on because I so appreciate the work that your organization does. And as I was reading about your history, I learned that you became interested in pesticide issues after working with farm workers and small farmers through an EPA grant in 1978. Tell me about that experience.
0: Yeah, it it was eye-opening for someone who considered himself an environmentalist, concerned about healthy food, to actually be on the ground and view American agriculture from the eyes of those who do the farming and till the land and apply the pesticides really helped me to better understand the deficiencies in the, the way in which we We protect our environment and protect those who are handling the chemicals that are used on our food and then ultimately the limitations in how we protect food consumers. And so what I actually ended up doing, as you say, through an EPA grant was to try to collect information from those who had the direct exposure to pesticides to try to formulate uh, with EPA a worker protection standard to try to identify where workers were being exposed, how they could be better protected. And, in fact, we did get a worker protection standard years later, limited, uh, and it, in fact, needs updating as we speak. We need to constantly review uh, the adequacy of those protections. What are the chemicals that are being used? Are they adequately reviewed to protect people from entering fields and handling treated crops? Do workers get adequate protection in terms of equipment? And, you know, the whole gambit of the farm as a workplace for those who are handling some pretty hazardous materials.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and I should let our listeners know that you have a master's in urban and regional planning with a focus on health policy, and you also have a political science degree. So I think you I – don't, I don't think – there could have been a better person assigned for the executive director of this organization. So there are it many... It is
0: helpful. It I is. Mean, there is the, the intersection between policy, health issues, and politics, unfortunately, that enters into this equation too often.
1: I agree. And we are dealing with the repercussions of those relationships every day, and it seems to be mounting. For example, I know we have several issues that we want to cover today, but one of them had to do with GMO crops, and something that I think – Our listeners may not realize is that we hear this dominant narrative about GMOs, like we have to have this technology to feed the world. But what people don't understand is that GMO crops are engineered, most of them anyway, to withstand spraying with herbicides, or they incorporate a pesticide into every cell of the plant. And we know that Pests and weeds and even humans become resistant to agents in our environment. And now we're faced with more herbicides being sprayed with larger consequences. So I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit.
0: Yeah, I mean, technology can be a good thing, but it can also steer us in the wrong direction if we're not careful uh, how we use it. And when genetically engineered plants were introduced as a technological concept, the idea was that this would bring us more productivity and less reliance on toxic inputs. That's how it was sold to us by Monsanto and other companies that market it. Now, it's counterintuitive for anybody that knows chemical interactions and how our insects in the environment and organisms generally react, that over time what we've learned with pesticides is that, and this is true with virtually every family of chemicals that have ever been used to manage pests in an agricultural context, and non-agricultural context, because obviously we use pesticides around our homes well, and in our communities as well, that these insects... Because they go through their life cycles so quickly, they basically mutate to resist to the chemicals. So over time, the the insects that survive the chemical spray adapt to it and then reproduce and then, lo and behold, a few generations later, and sometimes it can take within a year. There have been charts published that show over time uh, resistance from seven years to literally a growing season in which we see uh, insect resistance uh, to the to the pesticide. So we take a technology like genetically engineered plants and you put uh, essentially a gene in there that is specifically to, uh, engineered to resist an herbicide, which would otherwise uh, desiccate or kill the plant. And you spray that pesticide, in this case glyphosate, Over and over and over and over again and over time what you'll see happen is that plant develops resistance. You know, to the, the weed being the plant because of course what we're doing is we're, we're engineering this plant to withstand the spray so that we can spray the toxic chemical against the weed that has an economic impact on, on the plant. Now understand that the theory if it were ever to be plausible, would certainly be expensive, number one, and would certainly be replacing other practices that were, from the very get-go, viewed as much more sustainable. Because any plant that is inherently, or any agricultural system that is inherently dependent on the application of a poison, cannot be ever defined as sustainable over time because you're hurting the environment in which that plant is being grown. You're hurting the soil microbial activity. You're hurting the wildlife. You're hurting the natural predators that are in that field. So you're creating a system that ultimately over time cannot sustain itself. But here what we've seen is an increased use of the herbicide, increasing potency needed to maintain the same level of protection against those so-called weeds that which are really unw- unwanted plants in the field okay and and now the proof in the, of the pudding here is that we are we the chemical companies and the uh technological arm that is trying to find alternatives uh, now that we're seeing resistance to the herbicide are coming up with other herbicides to be used. And they're talking about, again, as I said earlier, even more potent herbicides, 2,4-D and dicamba are are now being proposed for use uh, in genetically engineered plant systems. Mm. And that's just, obviously, we know 2,4-D is 50% of the mixture of Agent Orange. It's, it's known to cause cancer. It's been associated with reproductive failures and endocrine disruption. And here we're going to be going through the same cycle, given that the USDA uh, has deregulated. uh, That's the term they use when they determine not to restrict its use under the Plant Protection Act. They will allow this chemical to be used as part of a genetically engineered plant system.
1: Hmm. And I know that we are in a waiting period now for the environmental impact statement to be completed. And my question has to do with, okay, what does the environmental impact statement look at? So your organization is very interested in the bee colony collapse disorder, as every eater out there should be. And now we have an herbicide that going to be applied to plants my first question is of course human health what does it do to bees do these environmental impact statements even consider these secondary impacts
0: not very well you know these are more general uh, questions about you know impacts on biological systems yes but in more of a cursory manner than we would need to to make determinations as to whether we're going to have long-term problems. You know, the the most difficult concept I think we have when we look at toxic chemicals and the use in the environment are low-level exposures over long periods of time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we know we've seen a a demise of the colonies. We've we've seen the disappearance of uh, monarch butterflies to a large degree we see damage to natural predators in the ag environment and and these are very difficult secondary impacts as you say that to pick up in this kind of environmental impact statement you know and then there's the question of whether these the statements overall are adequate given what the law requires and what I'm what I'm suggesting is that you know it, it, given that we have a law that does require uh, a review of the impacts of a particular chemical use on the environment, we could be doing a better job under the law, but the reality is we're not. You know, the reality is that government, under tremendous pressure from chemical companies, often holds back, literally, in terms of its assessment, uh, the extent to which it reviews all the impacts that and mixtures of chemical secondary impacts that can occur as a result of the use of these chemicals. So the bottom line is no. The environmental impact statement, given the complexity of the issues at stake here, particularly around resistance and escalating use of pesticides over time, is not doing an adequate job uh, to to regulate these chemicals uh, as they should be. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, like you, I'm very concerned about our bees because on the one hand, we know as as a dietitian, we we know in our field how important it is to eat fruits and vegetables, and yet in order to have many of our fruits and vegetables, we need bees for pollination. And one of your last newsletters had a great section, and it's also online for our listeners, beyondpesticides.org, about this bee protective guide, what we can do to protect our pollinators. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, you know, there are a lot of angles to this, because if you start at the top of the Pyramid, say, uh, you know, of, of, of a constellation of issues. You start with why, how do these chemicals that are hurting bees get into the marketplace in the first place? And th- when you ask that question, you have to sort of look at the EPA, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, and all the states that also register pesticides and rely on EPA, uh, and ask the question is it adequate? Is the, is the review of the chemical in question uh, adequate to protect? the environment, uh, and people. And certainly what's happened vis-a-vis bees is that we've embraced uh, technologies and pesticides that are directly harmful to bee populations. At the same time, we haven't adequately asked all the questions that need to be asked and conducted the field studies that, that should be carried out to make determinations on adequately protecting bees. So back in around uh, 2003, 4, 5, we introduced these chemicals in the neonicotinoid family. It's a family of chemicals. So these are systemic chemicals that are literally um, integral to the seed. And when you plant the seed, the, the chemical then is transferred through the vascular system of the plant as it grows and then expressed through the pollen and the nectar and the gutation drops of the plant. And so very indiscriminately, bees that are feeding, foraging, and pollinating on plants get poisoned. And we've created tremendous fields, uniform fields of poison, that are carried through the plant material and transferred to the bee The honeybee, wild honeybees, domesticated bees that are actually brought to fields to pollinate as a result of the registration of these relatively new pesticides that were introduced into the marketplace under what's called a conditional registration, conditional, without having answered the basic impact question, what is going to happen to bees as a result of this chemical being released into the environment? So we really need to Fix that registration. That's a political problem, obviously. From the homeowner's state, you know, I own a garden. I care about my the wildlife uh, that visit the, the natural predators that come to the what we call beneficial insects mm-hmm. that come to my garden. What can I do with that garden? And the the thing is that we need to create habitat because we've lost so much habitat to a large extent because we're you know we're spraying a lot of these chemicals around like we talked about earlier these herbicides that go off target they kill plants all kinds of beneficial plants they kill plants along roadsides they kill plants that are in the fields along uh, traditionally have been in the fields by uh, agricultural fields milkweed for this reason has disappeared and as you know that's a tr- tremendous source of food for butterflies and so we, by not evaluating, uh, the full effect of these chemicals being indiscriminately put into the environment, we have lost habitats, so we need homeowners, we need gardeners, we need our community parks, our, the land in which we have some influence over, you know, to manage, to be very cognizant of how we can protect, uh, beneficial insects, uh, like pollinators. Mm -hmm. And this is something we can do, Uh, we can make that decision within our own household, within our own community. There's a little wrinkle in all of this right now because what we have found through our own work and collaboration with other organizations is that some of the nursery stock that is being sold, a lot of it at our our nurseries and our communities have actually been produced with these chemicals that are killing bees. So while we may be buying, you know, trying to do the right thing, we may be buying plant stock that is actually contaminated. And this is a problem we have to get at pretty quickly here um, because we don't want to be exacerbating the problem, right, in our local gardens, uh, community gardens, and the plants we plant around our schools. and. You know, by buying plant stock inadvertently that is actually contaminated with these these chemicals.
1: Mm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Jay Feldman. He is the executive director and co-founder of a nonprofit organization based in Washington, D.C. called Beyond Pesticides. And if you want to learn more about any of the topics we've been speaking about, I cannot emphasize the website enough. It is www.beyondpesticides.org. There is a fantastic bee protective habitat guide to talk about what kinds of plants we can introduce to our gardens to be protective for pollinators and attract pollinators. There's also a terrific guide it's called Eating with a Conscience, and what I love about this, Jay, is that as a consumer, I can go on and I can click on a fruit or vegetable, and then I can find out what kinds of pesticides or herbicides are most likely to have been used on that plant. And we can see if they're carcinogens, we can see if they pollute waterways, etc. And that that brings me to your role on the National Organic Standards Board, and of course. I believe, just as you do, that organic systems are the most protective for pollinators as well as people and wildlife. So I was reading one of your, you're a wonderful writer. I just want to let our listeners know. And you wrote a letter, it's called Letter from Washington, and it's online. And you talk about the organic label, and I think this is a very important point that we need to cover. You say, I am often told by people that government has taken over organic or that we cannot trust the USDA organic label, and I hear that all the time as well. Please comment on that.
0: Well, first of all, you know, part of what we've been talking about here, I think the examples you've keyed in on, in our discussion really show the, the systemic failure of a system, and this is a, the agricultural systems, it's a regulatory system that allows inputs in agriculture, toxic inputs, the failure of our systems to adequately protect health and the environment in a way that we would expect as parents, as stewards uh, of, our, of our gardens, as, as a member of the global community concerned about the future of the planet, we have systemically failed to promote and adopt systems that are protective of the environment and the future health of our our country and the globe. So we, through the organic approach, you know, through the organic system, and now the Organic Foods Production Act, which was adopted to basically set up a national system by which we define the allowable practices and inputs in organic, we really have an opportunity to address these systemic flaws that that have been allowed to flourish in the chemical-intensive world in which we live. But it's going to take public involvement because, as most of us have experienced, either personally or by studying uh, policy or by being engaged at some level in the public arena, we know that unless we as citizens participate in the process by which we define organic, the process by which we enforce organic, the process by which we allow the USDA organic label to exist in effect, we will ultimately hand that label over to industries that have other motives for their existence, may not embrace all the core values that we have talked about on this show in terms of protecting health in the environment as the primary goal of agriculture. And unless we engage with the National Organic Standards Board, which has meetings twice a year around the country, uh, they also have a public hearing process whereby the public can comment on all the decisions that are being made through that very public board we will see over time a dilution of the meaning of organic, and we really can't let that happen because we have a great opportunity, I think, to fight back and create a safe food supply and a safe environment through systems that respect nature and respect the value of a clean and healthy planet.
1: Now, in terms of public involvement, Jay, would you recommend that people go to the National Organic Standards Board website? And sign up for updates so that they know when yes. to? Okay, great.
0: Yes, that's perfect. And also Beyond Pesticides has a, a page we call Keeping Organic Strong. And on that page, we try to make it easier to access the the federal page, as it were. You know, there's a, there's a comment page, um, which you can comment, and we give you background and summary information of all the issues that are open for public comment during that period. It's really not that hard. These are issues that are really critical to everybody that is right now buying organic or people that are thinking about it. So get on our Keeping Organic Strong page at BeyondPesticides.org, And it really is easy to be an active member of this community on behalf of yourself and and children and the environment generally.
1: Absolutely. And I think People may want to get involved, but the missing step is, well, how do I do it? And how do I do it so that it doesn't take a lot of time and it's not difficult or cumbersome? And so thank you for mentioning that. I frequently remind people to go to the NOSB site for all kinds of information about what organic really means, but how nice that your website also provides that easier link. Now, Jay, we have a couple of other topics that I wanted to bring up and I know our time is short but I just wanted to commend you for your work with healthcare without harm and a project that you told me about in Maryland where a hospital has decided to no longer use pesticides on the plants there.
0: Right. Thanks for bringing that up. You know, hospitals obviously serve a sensitive population. These are folks that are there in the facility because they're suffering from an illness. Many of which are environmentally induced, you know, so we're talking about cancer respiratory problems, We're, you know, we're talking about even diabetes is linked back to uh, pesticides. So regardless of the illness, pesticides can exacerbate the problem because they weaken the nervous system, they weaken the immune system, And it doesn't make a lot of sense to take people uh, in a state of convalescence and expose them to these neurotoxic immunosuppressive materials. And hospitals are beginning to realize this. And so a lot of hospitals, most hospitals these days, have green teams, actually. You can walk into your local hospital and literally say, can I talk to somebody on the green team? Because I want to know what the practices are in this hospital. What are you using for your pest management? What kinds of cleaning materials are you using? What's your disposal practices? And what's being fed to patients? Uh, Do you have an organic food program? What are you doing with your waste? Are you composting your food waste out of your... The hospitals can be a central vehicle in the community for change in this regard, whether we're talking about structural management, what goes on in terms of structural pests or the landscape around that hospital and be a leader, especially with the medical staff, the nursing staff, and all those involved and concerned about health care are the perfect community to lead the community to alternative practices that are not reliant on toxic chemicals. And we're doing this in, in the state of Maryland and in Washington, D.C., Um, It's a relatively new program. It's something that can be done in any community around the country. We have model policies for hospitals and practices that can and should be adopted to protect patients, as I say, who are in a vulnerable, highly vulnerable state, but also to show the way for the community as a model for safe pest management.
1: And you also work with the pesticide use around schools?
0: Yes, yes. Schools, again, another critical example of a vulnerable population group. Children are known to be at higher risk to pesticides because of their smaller body size. They take in more air and food relative to body weight. So, again, like hospitals, schools need to be concerned about not only the chemicals they bring into the site, whether we're talking about playing fields and chemicals used for turf management, We're talking about structural pest management for ants or mosquitoes or termites, whatever it is, the chemical use around and in that facility, buildings and grounds. But also, what are we feeding our kids? I mean, you know this topic very well. What are we feeding our kids at school? And we certainly don't want to try to educate kids and think we're going to be as successful as we can and then feed them a poor diet that's contaminated with neurotoxic chemicals that affect behavior and an ability to think. It's counterintuitive. So we have great opportunities and so many beautiful models out there, schools that have gone pesticide-free, that have adopted these practices because they recognize that children are especially vulnerable to toxic chemical exposure.
1: Jay, you have been a terrific guest, as I knew you would be because you were in the past. I'm going to have to make you a regular guest on this show. I want to thank you so much for being here. We are out of time. I want to remind our listeners we've been speaking with Mr. Jay Feldman, the Executive Director and Co-Founder of Beyond Pesticides. His website has all of the information we've been talking about, plus more, including safe alternatives. Just as you were speaking about, Jay, we have great examples of how to do it better. And there are great alternatives to the toxic model that we think we don't have a way out of. So in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I want to encourage our listeners once again to go to this terrific website, www.beyondpesticides.org. Thank you again so much, Jay, for your work and for being my guest.
0: Thank you, Melinda.
1: Keep up the great work, thanks.